You are listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast with Buck Joffrey. Get ready to change your life. Welcome, everybody. This is Buck Joffrey with the Wealth Formula Podcast. Uh, before we start, I want to point out uh, there is lots of opportunities to get involved further with Wealth Formula. You can start by going to wealthformula.com. Bunch of resources there, including my free book, Seven Secrets of Eternal Wealth. Uh, was an Amazon bestseller. In addition to that, you can get a copy of George Newberry's book, Burn Zones, which is another great book to learn about the ups and downs of a real estate uh, entrepreneur, which George was before uh, becoming a uh, master in the non-performing note space. And also want to remind you that if you want to get involved further with Wealth Formula, the best way to do so is to go to wealthformularoadmap.com and check out the course along with the mastermind and private forum and bi-weekly phone calls and all the stuff that you get. In fact, makes a pretty good holiday gift. So if you owe somebody one of those, maybe check that out as an opportunity as well. Again, that's at wealthformularoadmap.com. Now, finally, I will point out one last thing, and that is that if you are an accredited investor, that means you make at least $200,000 a year, $300,000 if filing jointly, or have a net worth of a million dollars outside of your personal residence. You are an accredited investor. You don't have to apply for anything. You just are. And you can join Investor Club. You can do that at wealthformula.com. Why would you do such a thing? Well, the reality is that unfortunately the world is unfair and there's opportunities that are available to you as an accredited investor that are not available to others. So if you fit those criteria, check out uh, wealthformula.com, join Investor Club. You're going to want to do so soon. Lots of things coming up through the pipeline. Let's move on with the topics of the day. Now, you know, uh, it's been really a hell of a year in terms of market volatility, right? Now, of course, you look at something like cryptocurrency, we expect that. It's a speculative asset with binary outcomes, right? It's either a huge win or a huge loss. And and that's why we only invest money that we can lose in things like that. You know, we I, I called it Maserati money. Well, I definitely lost a Maserati this year. And in 2018, uh, pretty much everybody lost. Who knows what happens in 2019? Maybe we we, we make our Maserati back. I don't know. Maybe we, we even do better. But that's, you know, that's the crypto market. But the equity markets, right? You know, the New York Stock Exchange and uh, all these things, they're supposed to be where we put our retirement funds, right? That's what we were told was the conventional wisdom, stocks, bonds, and mutual funds. Now, December has been the worst month in the stock market since 2008 as of today. And I am recording this um, the day after Christmas. And there's a little bit of a dead cat bounce today. And people are like, stocks are roaring back. But folks, this is a stock market that is um, has been kind of in free fall. I mean, December has been the worst month in the stock market since 2008. And it could very well be the worst December since 1932 during the Great Depression. Now, why? That's what I have to ask you and see if you can give me a good good answer why. Is it because the Fed rates went up by one quarter of 1%? Is it? 
Is it because there is a government shutdown over a, a border wall? Why do these seemingly unrelated circumstances affect your publicly traded equities? Why is that? Well, the answer you're not going to like, and people don't like it when I say it, but your wealth in the stock market is not real. You know, when people get nervous and there is a sell-off in the market, your wealth vanishes. And if something can vanish like that, it can't be real, can it? Now, I know some of you skeptics out there will say, yeah, Buck, I know you always say this, but the real estate market is not an uncorrelated asset either. It's going to follow suit and real estate prices can potentially go down as well if, if asset prices in the equity markets go down. And you know what? I'm not going to argue that point. That's absolutely true. But here's the difference. You see, the money I have tied up in real estate is real. How do I know that? Well, I can see, touch, and, and feel an apartment building. And, and you know what? People have to have a place to live. So what they do is in order to keep a roof over their head, they sell off their stocks. That's what they do. And as for the value of the building, well, maybe you're right. Maybe it goes down in value for a period of time. But if I'm making money from the asset now because people need to live there anyway, why do I even care? You know, I'll just cash flow for a few years. And when the value goes back up, well, maybe maybe I'll sell then or maybe not. You know, these are not new concepts for this show, but worth repeating, right? They're worth repeating because I'm sensing out there, particularly for people who have exposure to the equity markets, a sense of panic. Um, you know, there's people with a lot of stocks and mutual funds tied up. That's supposed to be your retirement funds because the, that's the conservative thing to do, right? That's what everybody tells you. And right now I'm getting a lot of questions about that and where to invest or or, or where to hold cash. And you know, I'm not going to be a fool here and try to give you financial advice because I am not a financial advisor. Let me point out, though, that my strategy continues. My personal strategy continues to buy moderately leveraged real estate with value add opportunities in high growth markets. For example, Dallas, Houston, Phoenix, Atlanta. And again, if you're an accredited investor and you want to know exactly what I'm up to, Join Investor Club, ASAP, and you might be able to, you know, basically uh, piggyback onto what I'm doing if that's of interest to you, you you know, so you may have your own thing to do too. That's fine. As for where to keep cash, I'll say it again. There's only one vehicle that I know that continued to provide solid, positive, compounding growth and liquidity through the Civil War, through the Great Depression, through the Great Recession, and that is believe it or not, in a insurance products. It's, it's Wealth Formula Banking. Go to wealthformulabanking.com and check that out. Because in my opinion, this is truly the best risk-adjusted long-term liquid investment there is. And that's saying a lot, but again, that is my opinion, and I truly believe that. And if you go over historically, with banks failing and markets crashing and all of that, I think you would probably agree that that's probably the case. Now, if you're tired of feeling queasy, and believe me, I understand that. I really do. What it feels like to feel queasy, not knowing which way the market's turning, not knowing what you know tomorrow's going to look like. 
If you don't like that feeling, maybe it's a time to look into these kinds of options. What do I think personally about what's going on now? You know, I think it's volatility. You know, I think we're in for some serious volatility in the next year, especially the first half of the year. You know, in reality, you know, we're probably, uh, you know, a lot of market indicators, et cetera, suggest that there'll be or we are in some kind of a recession already. But a recession doesn't need to mean it doesn't need to mean a zombie apocalypse. Right. I don't believe personally that we're headed for another 2008 right now. The biggest problem we have right now is that rates are normalizing very slowly, although mortgage rates in the 10-year treasury is is still very low and, and doesn't seem to be affected by the Fed rate. And there is, on top of this rate increase, a tremendous amount of political uncertainty. And you know what? The markets hate uncertainty. And that kind of uncertainty and instability is not going anywhere. In fact, uh, with the Democratic Congress coming in, it's going to raise all hell for Trump, and it's not going to be pretty. And I think you can expect volatility uh, in the coming future. Now, s- sitting on cash uh, right now is almost certainly a losing scenario because in an inflationary environment, money in the bank is pretty much money that is guaranteed to lose money. With uh, inflation going up faster than the interest rates that you're getting, Uh, you're guaranteed to lose money. So if you want to guaranteed lose money, just keep doing what you're doing and keep your money in the bank. Now, remember, though, as far as the markets, they go up and they go down. And even though in good times we never seem to remember that, that is the case. It doesn't mean that we freeze and we do nothing and we just let money sit in the bank and have guaranteed losses. It means we make decisions based on what is in front of us. We, We try to think rationally, right? So when we come back today, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, and we're also going to get to all of your questions with the second half of Ask Buck. And we'll get to all that after these messages. Okay, welcome back at the show, everyone. Uh, This is uh, the Happy New Year episode of Wealth Formula Podcast, and we're going to pick up where we left off last time. I am back here again with Madeline a.k.a. Joni. Madeline, how are you? Good, how are you? <laughs> good, good. And uh, Phil uh, Chan, also in the house. Uh, Phil is, of course, my media director. Madeline is my assistant, and they are helping me. We had a bunch of questions. We started uh, doing these Ask Buck answers last week, and we realized the show was going to run way too long. So to keep the party rolling, Pull up, you know, your eggnog or whatever your drink of choice is, and let's uh, let's continue. We still have like a bunch of questions to get through. So, Madeline, why don't you uh, why don't you start uh, with the first one? All right, we have Matney who says, "Hi, Buck. One thing it would be great to hear is how you diligence a new investment. What is your thought process? How do you vet the information, etc." I think a lot of guys get into the accredited world and then have so many options available to them, but don't know how to weed out the losers from the winners. Betting a pro forma and making sure the numbers make sense seems like the only piece of the puzzle. You seem to have a great knack for it. Would be great to hear your thoughts. Thanks. Yeah, uh, great question, Matty. In fact, um, you know, that's that's exactly what I talk about all the time, right? Um 
So as far as how do you weed through all these things that you're getting in your email box, what I would do is look at the email and see if you know the person you're getting it from. If you don't, just delete it. And I think that's a good way to start. That's um, There's a phenomenon going on right now, I think, that's a little tricky, and that is that everybody and their mother is all of the sudden raising capital. And I think it's, it's, it's good to a certain extent because I think it, you know, it's, it's making it so it's not just a a game of, of just a few, but I worry, frankly, that I think that there is particularly because anybody who bought real estate in the last 10 years, you know, since 2009 has only seen good days. And so, you know, there are, groups out there of, of people who have full-time jobs who are they're working 40 50 hours a week at their regular job and then all of a sudden they are you know taking down you know 20 million 30 million dollar assets with investor money and a lot of times the investors are not even accredited so it worries me and frankly it does worry me i think that these kinds of situations have not been stress tested so so I, it's a great question bottom line so as to how I vet deals, well, I don't vet deals. Um, what I do is I vet people, right? I vet groups, I vet operators, and for those of you who know, um, you know my multifamily group that I that I work with, you know, a lot is Western Wealth Capital. I I talk to them for a year and talk to their investors, and I went in to meet them myself, and I demanded a track record, and I. You know, I walked properties with them. You know, I did all of that and, and until I really felt good about the group. Now, understand that the moral of the story here is that a pro forma is meaningless unless you know who it's coming from, right? That is critically important. Anyone can make a nice, glossy-looking, you know, offering memorandum put on some numbers on there and have you believe them. And they may, the numbers might even make sense to you, right? But the devil's in the details, right? The devil's in the details. You may have a plan. You may be told that there's a plan and it may make sense, but you have to make sure that you believe that the team itself can pull off what they have uh, on their offering memorandum. So, you know, here's a great example. So, you know, I've mentioned before, I'm also a big fan of, of Kenny McElroy. And Kenny is, um, you know, a, a great, his tremendous integrity, a guy I really trust and who I invest with as a passive myself. Sometimes people joke around, joke about how Ken McElroy's uh, offering memorandums are so simplistic looking. Well, he doesn't need to blow you away with glossy glossy stuff, right? You didn't have to make things look pretty, you know? It's like putting lipstick on a pig or something. You just know him. You know his track record, and what he says comes out of his mouth. He believes it, and if it doesn't happen, it's not because he was lying to you, (laughs) because usually it does happen. It happens because of something unexpected. So the importance of no like, and trust is so critical, I cannot even tell you. So the bottom line is, the way I do it is I usually, if somebody is approaching me, it's not going to work, okay? So usually what's happening is I'm finding out through the grapevine about operators that are performing. 
and I'm finding out from other investors or investor groups. Then I'll sort of shop the group. In other words, I'll call them up as an investor, I'll talk to them, et cetera, and find out how they are. And, and then the process of kind of getting to know them happens, and then the verification of all of the, the, the claims and the track record and everything else that's involved happens, and then an investment happens. So, so again, it's sort of the, the opposite of what you might think, right? You might think you're looking at the deal. No, you don't look at the deal. You look at the people, right? I invest in people. I don't invest in deals. So hopefully that helps. Next question. The next one is from Aziz who says, hello, Buck, please provide the best strategy for using retirement funds to invest in European real estate, especially Portugal. Sometimes I just don't have an answer. <laughs> and uh, I won't even pretend to on this one, right? Madeline, what do you think? Do you know how to invest uh, in real estate in Portugal? <laughs> um, I wish I knew how to invest in real estate in general, let alone <laughs> Portugal. Come on, come on. You listen to the show, don't you? Don't answer that. <laughs> Yeah. So honestly, Aziz, I just don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think if you're looking at getting into European real estate, it's an entirely different, uh, you know, it's an entirely different specialty. And it's something that I don't know a whole lot about. So I'm not going to pretend to answer that. But thanks for the question. Uh, let's see. Eric Schultz has Eric a question. Says, Hi, Buck. What do you see as the best place to park cash reserves heading into 2019? Assume your wealth formula banking policy has already been maxed out for the year. Yeah, good question. Again, I can't, I'm not going to give you financial advice, but here is some considerations that you may think about. One is, of course, you know, my friend, uh, you mentioned wealth formula banking, which is going to be my first uh, choice on that for a variety of reasons. Um, wealthformulabanking.com, check that out if you don't know what I'm talking about. But um, I like HP servicing. Listen, I am not, and I'll say it again, um, I'm not, you know, I'm not a partner. I wish I was. I wish, wish I was a partner of HP servicing and I was getting, you know, paid by them or something like that on, but they are a sponsor of the show. But I've been investing with HP and George for a very, very long time. HP servicing is nice because not only is it, you know, it's 10% returns on, on these, it's non-performing debt fund. But the biggest thing that I think that makes them very different from everyone else uh, in this space is liquidity, right? So you can park money there. And I think he, they're asking for about 30 days. Typically, it has never taken me more than a few days to get money out of AHP personally. But but that's another consideration. Another one I thought was interesting, um, I might have mentioned this last show, is depending on how long you're talking about holding and you're worried about inflation, I'm not sure, so sure about physical gold, because I don't think it's going to be easy to get out of, and the taxes you pay on any capital gains is onerous. Um, but if you're trying to hold cash, GLD, the ETF, might be something to consider. I have not ever done this myself, but I had an investor I spoke to who had an interesting idea, which was to hold money in a gold ETF. And um, and essentially what he's doing is he's selling options on this, so he's cash flowing too. So that's that's something to think about. I'm not an options expert. It is something that I've thought about. We've had Andy Tanner on the show, which Andy, um, Andy's the master. And I, I highly, if this is an interesting concept to you, maybe check out Andy Tanner's stuff. Uh, I don't know what his website is, but just Google Andy Tanner. And 
it might make sense to look at it that way as well. But again, for me personally, you know, cash is wealth formula banking, AHP, um, and plus or minus possibly looking into an ETF uh, for GLD, which is the gold ETF, and consideration only if I can learn how to sell options and and, and not be uh, totally stupid about it. So, okay, next question. Our next question is from Alex, who says, Good morning, Buck. I am a dentist that recently purchased my own practice a year ago, which has done much better than I expected. I have not listened to all your podcasts, but a pretty good number. And one thing that I have heard you talk about, but never really expand on, is you talk about how important growing your business income stream is. I find many people in my profession have high-paying jobs that are self-employed positions, but the business starts and stops with them and does not create income without their direct input. Again, as a dentist, this hits really close to home, and my goal for the next year is to make my practice operate more as a business. So any advice on that topic would be excellent, whether it's marketing, hire employees, setting up operation systems, et cetera. Yeah, great question. And in fact, um, you know, I've had a few different dentists uh, in my investor group who have had big liquidity events. In other words, they sold their business or part of their business to private equity, and they've made a lot of money doing it. So honestly, I think this is something that, I mean, if I was in your position, I would be all over this and trying to figure out how to to do that. So specific, you know, it, it, it's, it's obviously a, a very complex question, but I think <clears throat> the biggest problem that most self-employed individuals have, so doctors, and, you know, dentists, et cetera, especially doctors. Like, you know, I was in the cosmetic surgery world myself, and, and we still have that cosmetic surgery office in, in, in Chicago. That's where Madeline's sitting at there. That, you know, it, where I was coming from, most people who were going into it, most cosmetic surgeons, they were, it was all about vanity, and they wanted to be famous, and they, you know, they wanted to have their name up on the door, whatever. They wanted to be the next Dr. 90210. I, I didn't really care to be famous. That wasn't my point. I had just gotten done reading uh, Kiyosaki's Cash Flow Quadrant, which might be a good start for you uh, if you haven't read it. And I said, I want to build a business. So from day one and that business, my name has never been on the door, still not on the door. And the benefit of that has been that I've always approached it as a business, not as a practice. And so now we've got what we've got, you know, two, three different surgeons uh, who work there. We have, um, I haven't done cosmetics in probably at least two years, if not three years myself. And I think the big thing is like on how I, how I, how that particular business was built is analogous, I think, to a dental practice because a lot of dental practice is not insurance based. So if it's not insurance based, it's really, you know, building a business like any other business. And so, you know, when I got in there, I was thinking to myself, you know, what I really need to do and what nobody else does or, or not a lot of people do around me is market. So the first thing I did was find, um, you know, with some mistakes along the way, I found a very, very strong internet marketing person. I found, you know, a good person for television and radio. So I was on television, radio, I was on the internet. I still am. Um, I was always focusing on a brand. I was always focusing on a procedure. I was never focusing on myself. I think that, again, most people don't approach 
these practices, from the first day, you ought to be thinking about the exit. How are you going to leave this practice? And that doesn't mean you're going to necessarily. In my case, you know, with the cosmetic surgery business, I did. But you always want to be able to do that if if you decide to do that, if it makes sense for you to do that. And the best way to do that is to ask yourself the question of how could I make this business run without me? So if you need more patients, well, what do businesses do? You're in a profession where, depending on your market, you could probably be you know, doing some radio. You probably could be doing some internet marketing, et cetera, if you're not already doing that. Um, drive in more pa- patients. At some point, it may make sense for you to add more, uh, more staff. Uh, and that then at one point, you're going to say to yourself, well, gosh, I'm making a, a, a lot more money than I was. What does this look like if I pull myself out of the picture? And if it looks like the business is still profitable and you could, you know, no longer, you know, go in and, and do your practice, then somebody's probably going to want to buy that business. So it sounds very simplistic, but that's really what it comes down to. You just always have to approach any business, in my opinion, with an, an eye towards the exit. Whether or not you make that exit, entirely up to you, but you want to be able to do that. The difference is huge because for those who, people who don't do that and they finish their careers, they can sell their practices for, you know, uh, basically for goodwill, which is not very much, you know? You're just not going to get that much for your practice. You know, you're going to get the cost of the equipment, maybe, maybe a little bit of goodwill. But if you're selling a business, you're going to get a multiple, and you might get a multiple of seven or eight times uh, or better in terms of the, you know, in term, uh, seven or eight times profits. And so you could end up with millions and millions of dollars. So I think, you know, I don't know your specific situation, but I think it's smart to think that way and, um, you know, think like any other business. Again, what does, and, and a good model might be to look at your, you know, most successful cosmetic surgery businesses, wherever you are, and see what they're doing. Do the same. Get on Facebook, get on, you know, Google and, and, and TV and radio and all that. So hopefully that's helpful. But um, again, one thing that you need to know, which I think is very, very important and useful, is that you have a tremendous opportunity there because private equity loves, loves, loves dental practices. So if you can build something that somebody wants to buy, you could cash out potentially for a lot of money. Okay, next question. The next one is from Stefan, who says, what is a current struggle you're facing right now in your businesses and doing the podcast? Good question. Well, you don't usually talk about my own stuff, but you know, so I have a few different businesses I've talked about before. One of the businesses that I had in, in Chicago, unfortunately, was uh, unable to survive. So this year, it's been going out of business. So I still have a um, couple other businesses. One was the cosmetics business I talked about, and then another one um, out there that are thriving. Um, my other businesses that are not medical-related are, are thriving. Um, but, you know, it's always hard when one of your businesses, in this particular business was around for a while, goes out of business. So, you know, some of the challenges there is, you know, there's some debt to be paid off, et cetera, how to handle that. But uh, again, you know, that's one of the uh, w- one of the important elements of, uh, I think, in general, 
of this whole concept of multiple streams of income, right? Uh, people talk about passive income. Well, passive income is great. It's rarely ever completely passive. What I think is even more valuable is this concept of multiple streams of income. And so having multiple businesses, multiple, you know, multiple assets that are throwing off cash flow, et cetera, this is all part of it. So that's, um, that's one thing. On the podcast side, I would say, you know, uh, I think that uh, I am inherently impatient and we've had tremendous growth over the last year and a half in the, you know, with this group, uh, with, with the show, with the show audience, you know, we can get a really high quality talent in terms of people who are, we're interviewing, you know, I have, you know, one of the best audiences hands down in, you know, in, in the podcast world. And I'm, I'm not saying that just to be, you know, kissing your butt. But what I'm, my point is, though, that I think I have a very engaged group of individuals. And I think you guys are, you know, you're just, you, you are big fans and, uh, you know, uh, not fair weather fans. So, so that's really helpful. What I would love to do is figure out, how to grow that even more and do that quicker. We're growing constantly, right? Even in the investor group, the accredited investor group, you know, people go to wealthformula.com. If you're, you know, interested in investing in things and you have a certain, you know, if you're an accredited investor, you can join that group and there's multiple people joining that every week, right? So the group is, uh, I think, you know, maybe seven, 800 people. I don't know. It's a big group of people. We'd love to continue to grow that quicker. And for a few reasons, obviously it helps us to, you know, continue to create better and better um, uh, shows and content because it allows us to continue to uh, rank on iTunes and, and have more subscriptions and that leads to better guests and that leads to even more people listening to the show. And that's all happening organically. My challenge is trying to figure out how can I do it quicker yet maintain the quality that I have right now? And I haven't figured that out. If you have any good ideas, let me know. So anyway, next question. The next one is from Vinny who says, Hey Buck, I enjoy your show. There are a lot of us dentists and physicians who teach and do research in universities around the U S and Canada. Some of us are nearing retirement. A decision we are confronted with is this. Do I take the pension or the lump sum? The looming pension crisis is a concern. Would like to hear from you on this issue. <laughs> well, I mean, for, I, again, I, I can't give you, um, I can't give you financial advice. But in any situation, for me personally, if somebody was saying, "Do you want to do a, a pension or a lump sum?" I'd take the lump sum. Why? For exactly what you just said. I mean, man, in a pension, the the whole pension world is uh, pretty scary right now. You know, they're trying to get returns. They have to get certain returns in order to continue paying people. But I think what's going to happen is some of them are just going to become insolvent and, you know, they're just not going to be able to keep the promises that they made. So, um, So that's one reason. The second reason is that personally, I'd rather be in charge of investing my own money, my own capital, because I think I can do better than a big clunky pension that's just, you know, trying to truck away and try to get you, you know, four or five percent. So that that would be my the way I did it. But, you know, of course, that's uh, that's a completely personal decision. 
and uh, it's not financial advice, but you know, bottom line is I don't trust anything right now that is gonna uh, that's going to put somebody else's put my future in somebody else's hands. So, so a pension is exactly that. So, hopefully that answers it. So the next question, I believe, is an audio uh, question. We actually have a recording here of uh, Brent. So why don't you go ahead and play that? Hi, Buck. Here's a two-part question for Ask Buck Podcast. This is Brent calling. We keep hearing that we're late in the cycle in this economic and real estate boom. Given that the party is going to come to an end eventually, how are you evaluating real estate investment opportunities in this environment? Are you stress testing them in a different way? For example, running the numbers from the pro forma at a higher cap rate? Part two of that question is, again, given that we are late in the economic cycle, to what extent do you recommend keeping cash on the sidelines to take advantage of opportunities that will appear as the as the cycle ends? Thanks. Okay, uh, yeah, Brent, uh, great questions. Listen, I think that in an environment like now, you know, I mean, listen, we're not we're not in 2011, 12, 13, 14. We're not there anymore. We're in a situation where, you know, asset, asset prices are, are 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 elevated for sure. We don't know how long that goes on, but we know that they're elevated. Um what I will say is this, is I think that you have to in my opinion, be careful of not getting to the point where you're playing too much defense. You know, you have to be careful of that because I think, you know, you see people who have literally been listening to the, um, you know, to, to the chicken little crowd out there who haven't invested since 2015 and 16. And if you were in that camp, you're feeling pretty foolish right about now. And so I don't know how long this goes. I really don't. Um, I think if you look at some of the issues that are out there, I think they are more complicated than they have in the past. Uh, Richard Duncan was on the show uh, a couple weeks ago, and he was talking about how he didn't think that the you know ten-year Treasury uh, was going to move very much, even with a bunch of of debt and a bunch of stimulation of the economy, and that's pretty unusual. So. I think right now, here's my take. Right now, the biggest issue to be concerned about is leverage, right? You have to make sure that whatever you're investing in, um, you're paying attention to the way that that leverage, that that it's not over leveraging. Because of that, my my focus has been on relatively moderately leveraged real estate uh, with a significant value add component. Why? Why do I care about the value add? Well, when you're adding value, you're adding equity to a property. And if you're adding equity to a property, you are then actively deleveraging your property. So in other words, you took something, you say you uh, say you bought something at 70% loan to value, right? If you increase a certain amount of equity in the property and it's worth more, now you might be at 60% loan to value. So that's that's probably my number one thing because I think at the end of the day, if you believe that real estate in the long run will continue to be an asset that will um, you know go up in value with inflation and will continue to you know continue to make money as I do, that I think even in a downturn, as long as you're not over leveraged, you know, you're basically just riding out a storm and you should be fine. That's kind of the way I view it. 
Now, as far as, you know, the pro formas themselves, of course, the pro formas, obviously, they need to take into account. You have to look into, um, you know, with with some of the groups that I work with in multifamily, what we're doing right now uh, is we're looking at rent increases and doing about, you know, half of the rent increases as the comps are showing on pro formas. Um, we're, mo- you know, we're modeling in increased rates. But what's interesting about modeling in increased rates, and I know this is something that people bring up a lot, is that the actual mortgage rates have not gone up that much because they are not based on just the Fed rate, right? It's 10-year treasury, which is really dictating that. The other thing is that typically uh, those mortgage rates are going to increase with inflation, right? That's the reason they're increasing in the first place. And if that occurs, then rents increase as well. So I think that the idea of you know not investing in real estate because of potential increases in mortgage rates is probably a little bit, you know, probably something that I think is not something that you need to worry about as much because inherently increasing mortgage rates are going to reflect increasing, increasing rents. So yeah, so we talked about conservative uh, rent increases. And then finally, I'd say evaluate your downside. What is your worst case scenario? You know, what are the loan covenants? We talked about in 2008, we've talked about this before. Even Robert Kiyosaki was telling me about this in one of his buildings that literally it was a a building that he was cash flowing on and he got a call from the banker saying that they wanted a capital injection. It was a capital call. How could you have an investment that is cash flowing and you're getting a capital call? Simple, loan covenants. Right. So if you say you have a loan covenant that's 80 percent loan to value, meaning you can borrow 80 percent, you have to bring 20 percent of the equity. But we're going to appraise this thing every you know 18 months or something like that. And we're going to make sure that you are not over leveraged. Well, what if the value of that property goes down, you know, 10 percent? Now, if the value goes down 10%, you are now in violation of your loan covenant. So you either cough up money or you give that building to the bank, right? So those are the kinds of things that happened in 2008. So again, that goes back to my concern about uh, concern about not over leveraging, right? Don't over leverage. Right now is the time to not over leverage. So you take moderate leverage, maybe you take 70% LTV, uh, so, you know, 70, 75%. Uh, at the most, and then you begin deleveraging with value add as soon as possible. And listen, here's the thing. The, again, if you believe in real estate and multifamily real estate as I do, eventually you're going to come out okay because if you don't overextend yourself with leverage. A few weeks ago or months ago, I don't remember, but Grant Cardone was on the show and he took it to another level, right? He was literally talking about he's okay with overpaying for properties. So he's saying, I'm going to overpay for properties and I'm going to like only leverage them. You know, like he's, he wants high quality properties and he's willing to overpay. And to compensate for that, he's only going to do maybe 60% loan to value, right? That is sort of an extreme, but you know, it's worked for him right? It's worked for him. The idea in that situation is you're not really looking at much in the way of 
of cash flow or returns in the near term, but in the long term, he's looking at significant equity. So hopefully that 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 sort of addresses your question. Um, I think there's a part two to that question, and that part two was about uh, keeping cash in the sidelines, right, Madeline? And and, and uh, do I think it's a good idea to keep cash on the sidelines? Yeah. So a couple things. Um, I always think it's important to have some liquidity available, and I and you know it's it's a mistake I've made in the past, which you know I hopefully won't ever do again. The best way to do that, in my view, again, I'm just going to say it over and over, is wealth formula banking. Uh, but also, there's some other liquid funds out there. Your savings account is not ideal. Why? Because your savings account is going to pay you less than inflation. So it's the it's it's investment where you are guaranteed to lose money, right? And real money, not like. Your, the, the, the value of your money is going down in that bank account because it's not keeping up with inflation. Now, um, let, me just, let me just add to that, though. I think that the mistake a lot of people have been making, and frankly, I think I got it wrong, too, even a couple of years ago when I was, you know, I was saying, I was listening to everybody else saying that the sky is falling, and, you know, I froze up and stopped investing, and I really regret that because I bought a couple of properties around that time, uh, right before that time, that ended up being huge, hugely profitable. So the bottom line is, what I would say is, yes, I think liquidity is important. I'm not giving you financial advice. I'm keeping liquidity around, but not because I'm necessarily anticipating blood in the street. I'm going to continue to invest, have a certain amount of liquidity available at all times, you know, vis-a-vis some of these smarter ways of, of, of keeping liquidity, whether that's wealth formula banking or HP servicing or whatever. And then, you know, if there is blood in the street or there's opportunities, then you have, you know, money to put in that as well. But I think that, you know, completely sitting on cash right now is, you know, that's not something that I think is, makes a lot of sense either, because the truth of the matter is, you know, we may, even if we have some recessionary activity this year, I mean, uh, you, you, you heard the guys at uh, ITR Economics on a few, again, a month or two ago, um, who we've been following. These guys think the next decade is going to be the roaring 20s, right? So, so again, you know, don't try to predict the future. Just look at your downside, be smart about it, and, you know, be like water. Well, anyway, uh, this has been a marathon of, of questions. We've been answering these uh, since uh, Christmas, uh, but hopefully you've enjoyed it. And uh, after we come back, we'll wrap it up with a few final uh, comments. Uh, welcome back to the show, everyone. And hopefully you got something out of that second half of Ask Buck. I want to remind you a few things. Uh, well, first of all, let me start with this. Thanks for another great year. This was uh, 2018 was a really great growth year for Wealth Formula Podcast. Lots of growth on the uh, investor club. Hopefully, if you're an accredited investor, you will get involved. I highly encourage you to do so. Get on wealthformula.com and sign up. Um, it's not a commitment for anything else than to see what's going on out there. It's where the magic happens. So check that out. Also, uh, you know, as far as the this year, though, it's been a great year uh, overall. We've had ups and downs, but, you know, the, the reality is that I think 2019 
even with volatility, I think we look at this and we look at what it is. You know, we make decisions based on what's in front of us. You know, again, I don't see, you know, uh, even if there is a little bit of a recession, even if we do have cycles turning a little bit, I don't think it's wise to necessarily sit there and try to time things out. Stick with the strategy and, you know, focus in and, you know, trying to trying to get in at the absolute lows is, is just as foolhardy as it is to, you know, get in at the highs. You just got to figure out a strategy and move forward that you feel like is resilient through different markets. Anyway, that said, uh, I think 2019 will be a good year for us because I think we're not going into this blind like a lot of people are. Now, again, join Investor Club. The other thing, uh, uh, you know, we'll emphasize is if you really want to get uh, in the nitty gritty with the wealth formula stuff, check out wealthformularoadmap.com. You know, it might be something that you consider doing in the new year to join our, uh, to take the course, join our mastermind, and it might be the best thing that you do for yourself this year. The biweekly calls are especially popular. Obviously, the course is huge. I mean, big names there uh, to teach you. Ken McElroy, Tom Wheelwright, um, and just a host of a bunch of other folks. So check that out as well. And finally, if you like the show, if you like what we've done, do me a favor. Go to wealthformula.com. Click on the button where it says, uh, you know, that you can uh, basically give us a review. Give us a five-star review. Subscribe to the show if you haven't. That's it for me this week on Wealth Formula Podcast. This is Buck Joffrey. Uh, Happy New Year. Signing off. Thank you for listening to the Wealth Formula Podcast. Visit us on the web at wealthformula.com. The information contained in this podcast are opinions, not fact. As always, consult your own financial team before making any investment. See you next time.